Uh, we will jump into our, uh, to our lesson for tonight, but first I want to pray for us and then we'll, we'll get into it. Dear Father, as we come to your word tonight, please give us uh, hearts that are humble and teachable. Please give us uh, minds that are alert and ready to listen. And let us not just hear a lesson or a message, but uh, let us hear you speak to us tonight um, so that uh, your spirit can do work changing us and making us like Jesus. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We are in Genesis 40 tonight. Actually, we're in Genesis 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and 45 tonight. So... Buckle up, get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. Um, we we will we will we will move quickly because there's a lot to cover. There is no other. Um, I want to say character. It's just not quite right to say this, but I'm going to say it. There's no other character that Moses spends more time on, gives more airtime, if you will, to in all of Genesis than Joseph, which is. Fairly remarkable. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to go back and, and go back on that statement in just a little bit, uh, but, but hang with me for a minute. Um, it's remarkable because uh, whenever, like, people are, whenever, like, God is referenced and, and you go back to the God of Genesis, they always say the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, because those are the big three right there. And, uh, and Abraham, especially, I mean, Abraham gets. Uh, referenced uh, as much as almost anybody else besides from maybe Moses, maybe David in the New Testament. Abraham gets mentioned all over the place. Joseph barely even gets his name thrown out there in the New Testament. And, and Joseph is actually, although he's part of the people of Israel, but he's actually a branch off that doesn't go straight down the line to, uh, to Jesus. Remember, we, we talked last week, why would you spend time talking about Judah and Tamar? Well, because that's like part of the royal line that leads to Jesus. Um, but, but Joseph doesn't actually have that lineage run through him to Jesus. And yet there is a lot of uh, content, a lot of ink spent on this story. It's a big story, and, and so there's a lot to cover. It's also an amazing story, um, an incredible one, full of all kinds of surprises and plot twists. I'm going to turn this off for a second. Um, uh, filled with all kinds of plot twists and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm, there we go. Um, and, and there's a reason, actually, that Hollywood has made multiple movies about the Joseph story because you can't write a better script than, than the Joseph story, the, the twists that come in it and the anticipation for the, the huge climax and all those things. You, you really can't write anything better. And, and so uh, a lot of uh, Hollywood scripts have been spent on that as well. But there's plenty to it, and so we're going to jump into it. We won't be reading everything in it tonight because that would be a lot. Um, we'll we'll kind of sum some of it up, but I want to just kind of tell you the story as much as possible. Um, when we last left off, several weeks ago, we left, left off with Joseph, who had been sold into slavery in Egypt, and then he ended up working in the household of Potiphar before Potiphar's wife accused him of basically trying to, trying to sexually assault her. And so uh, he gets thrown in prison. We don't think Potiphar bought it because he didn't have him executed. He had him put in the king's prison. Um, which more than likely Potiphar oversaw, at least I, I think that's probably what's happening. So he gets sent there to prison anyway, and he's, he's sitting there waiting in prison, and, we, and, and then we kind of shifted and we took a step back into Genesis 38 to talk about Judah and Tamar. But, but Joseph has been in prison, and, and we also saw this, that um, it says that Yahweh was with him. The Lord was with him. And so um, he was prospering and he was blessing him in, in prison so, so much so that Joseph kind of rose up the ranks, if you will, in prison and began to kind of oversee that under the chief guard. One day while he's in prison, um, two people get sent in from the king's court. Uh, the chief cupbearer, that is the person whose job it is to take care of the cup and make sure it is presented to the king, and he's also probably an advisor of some kind, and the baker, the chief baker are sent in there. Now, don't get in your mind just like kitchen staff when you hear that. These would be probably two high-ranking members of Pharaoh's 
court, um, two of his most trusted, actually, members of his court, because they actually oversee and guard two of the most vulnerable areas of attack for the king through his food and through his drink. Uh, if you want to assassinate a king and you want nobody to know about it, um, then poison his food. They don't have like the science there to trace that stuff and figure those things out. And so it was very important that you had the right people overseeing those things. That's why you had a cupbearer, somebody who kept uh, his eye on that all the time. What well, says that um, they offended the king, that they offended the king, and so they both get sent there on the same day. Uh, my guess is that it actually has something to do with the food, that, that maybe uh, the king got some sort of stomach illness since, since both of them on the same day, the two people guarding the food, get sent to prison on the same day. It leads me to believe that something may have happened with that. They end up kind of in the charge of Joseph, who's taking care of them there. Um, and one night, both of them on the same night have these very strange dreams, and they don't know what to do with them. They wake up kind of troubled and perplexed uh, by them. Now, in the ancient world, dreams were considered very significant, and, and they were considered to be ways that the gods were speaking to us. Uh, and, and so they, they took note of those things. We actually have, it's, it's been found in uh, Egyptian archaeological sites and in sites of ancient Babylon, like dream, uh, dream interpretation manuals. Uh, books that kind of walk through these these symbols mean this in dreams and this is what the gods may be saying to you as you read these things this is what the future may hold this is a big deal but only certain people were supposed to be able to do that and and usually they were kind of high-ranking people and people considered uh, very important people that probably the cupbearer and baker would have had access to on the outside of jail but on the inside they've got no way to know what to do with these things and so they're troubled by them and joseph sees this and he asks what's wrong um, and they say, we, we had these dreams, but we have no idea what they meant, and we don't know what to do with them. Joseph says in chapter 40, verse 8, his response is, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. He says, listen, um, you don't, it's, the interpretations don't come from books. They don't come from people outside with special, they, they come from God. So tell them to me. Let's, let's listen to this. And this is what is said in chapter 40, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer uh, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me uh, when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaohs will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Um, so he says to both of them, he actually does use the exact same phrase, in three days Pharaoh will lift your head, and then he adds to the baker, from your body. Um, so not as good, he says, and then you will be hanged in that. Now, hanging back then wasn't uh, a means of execution by and large, it was a, it was a means of public, publicly like dishonoring the body. Um, which would have, been, would have been a big deal. So he's not hanging him from a rope. He's beheading him, impaling his body on a stick, and hanging it out for the birds to feast on. Um, so this is the worst possible news that the baker could have gotten in those moments. Now, sure enough, three days later, this happens. On Pharaoh's birthday, it says, um, that he goes and he has the baker executed and he frees the cupbearer and has him come back into his court. But verse 23 tells us, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So it's now been about a decade, maybe a little more, since Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, um, unfairly and unjustly. And then 
Um, it's probably been two to five years since he was put in prison for a crime he did not commit. And finally, he sees this ray of light, this, this glimmer of hope that he's going to have someone on the outside, a friend that he has spoken to that's going to be in the very court of Pharaoh. And, and he sends him out and then nothing. Here's nothing from him. And, and, and you've got to wonder what's going through Pharaoh's head, or I'm sorry, going through Joseph's head. It must have felt so like so perfect that God gave him the answer to this dream for this man who's going to be serving in Pharaoh's court. This has to be what God wants. This has to be God's plan. And then nothing. For two years, nothing happens. Um, and then one night, Pharaoh has his own dream. Two of them, actually, back to back. Um, he goes to sleep and he has a dream in which seven um, nice, healthy, fat, plump cows walk up out of the Nile and they're out there grazing and then all of a sudden, seven lean and ugly and gaunt cows walk up out of the Nile and they devour, they eat these seven <laughs> plump cows. And Pharaoh wakes up and thinks, man, that was a weird dream. And then he goes back to sleep and, and then he has these seven like sheaves or seven ears of grain that are there, nice and full and plentiful there and and then out of nowhere, these seven like weak sheaves of grain, these ones that look like they've just been beaten up and tattered, and they come and they devour those other ones. And it says in the morning that Pharaoh wakes up and he's really troubled by this. Again, dreams mean something. So that, that had to mean, especially they say when, when two had come back to back, that, that's like an emphasis on these things. And so he's wrestling with it. He brings in all his magicians. He brings in all his wise men, and he asks them to interpret it. Nobody can do it. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer is sitting in that room, and he goes, oh my gosh, I, I feel so stupid telling you this, but, but I, I know somebody. I know somebody can do that. And he tells Pharaoh about the way that Joseph interpreted his dream two years earlier, and, and that it went exactly the way that Joseph had said it. And so, um, so they call Joseph up out of prison. They, they clean him up. He gets, his, uh, he gets shaved and nice and clean, probably, definitely beard, but maybe even like head as well. All the pictures we have of Pharaohs are at least face shaven. And so probably most people going into the royal court would have been that too. Um, and then this is what Joseph says to him about the dream when he asks him out about it. In verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. There is no one who can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Um, so from the outset, what we've seen as the reader, we've had the privilege to be able to see that God is at work behind the scenes, that he is causing these things to take place, that he is with Joseph and causing him to, even in the worst situations, kind of prosper. But what we see here is actually Joseph sees that too. Like even, even in the midst of this difficulty, even in the midst of all he's gone through, he's able to go, what's, what's come from me before was only God, and what's about to come from me will not be of my own doing, but it will be God doing this work through me. So Joseph hears it, and he explains what the dreams mean. He says, what it means is that Egypt will experience seven years of plenty, seven years of harvest and fruit coming in like you've never seen before, but then after that will come seven years of famine, um, the likes of which you've never seen before. Seven years that will be so hard that you'll forget the seven good years, he says. Now, this is, this is not common in Egypt. See, much of the world in this area relies heavily on the weather patterns, the, the rain to come in order for their crops to come in, their irrigation. Egypt doesn't depend on that. Egypt depends on the Nile, which is always there. It depends on uh, the, the flooding, which is more reliable and steady, the flooding of the Nile to, to water their crops. So they don't go through famine often. And, and for something like seven years to have, uh, take place, they, they know has to be something divine, something supernatural that would be causing that hap to happen. Um, but when Joseph's done telling him that this is going to happen, he then goes on and, and kind of, I don't, know, I don't know if this is a bold move, but he, he begins to offer the king advice. It says, and so here's what you should do. You need to appoint someone who will oversee the task of for the next seven years when all this 
food is coming in. They need to collect one-fifth of it from all of the people and gather it up in storehouses around the land. And you'll have overseers in all these sites. And then when the seven bad years come, then you'll have food left over for that. Someone needs to be over that. And, and so he gives this advice to Pharaoh, and then this is what Pharaoh says in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, by that, we probably does not mean Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, but he recognizes that there is something supernatural, that there is deity at work behind what, uh, what uh, Joseph is saying and the wisdom that comes with him. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, what you're about to read next sounds like kind of boring, minutiae details, but it's actually kind of interesting. I'll explain in a second. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said, to Joseph, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So G Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Moses actually goes into quite a bit of detail here about the kind of coronation of Joseph and what takes place in there. And what's fascinating about that is this is the most detail that we get about the Egyptian like way of doing things in Genesis. The, the most descriptive stuff about some of the process that they did. And, and we've discovered in Egyptian tombs back there, tombs, royal tombs, um, paintings that go like line by line with this detail. The, the placing of Pharaoh's signet ring on someone that he's putting on, the placing of the gold chain on them, the linen robes on them. And so this matches up like line by line, picture by picture, if you will, with the process that we see that, that archaeology has kind of uncovered on this. And, and Moses also thinks it's important to kind of point this out. Um, I think he wants to stress these things because if you remember, and we'll, we'll get there, um, but Joseph had dreams about stuff like this at the very beginning of this story. And, and Moses wants to make sure you, you catch it. It's, it's starting to take place. It's starting to happen. Um, um, he also marries him off to a daughter of the priest of On, which would have been actually put him in one of the most influential circles of the family. During this period, the priests of On were the second highest of all the priests. They were the priests actually who oversaw all the major religious festivals in Egypt, and they also oversaw other priests who were placed under them. So he puts Joseph in high circles there. Now, we're told in the next sec section that when the famine comes after seven years, that it does not just hit Egypt, but that it hits all the surrounding world, the surrounding land there, and all those countries are struggling by that. Um, and then we come to chapter 42, and it says, Then Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. And he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Um, so we see Jason, uh, Jacob is in there. He's experiencing famine. He hears that there's grain. So he sends the, the brothers to go there. But the writer tells us he does not send Benjamin. Uh, Rachel's only other son. And you can tell Jacob has been so uh, scarred and overwhelmed by the loss of Joseph that he refuses to let that ever happen again. Now, Benjamin's not a small boy. He's in his 20s at this time. But Jacob doesn't want to let him out of his sight for fear of losing that one as well. 
They come to Egypt they, um, and, and they recognize, or actually Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And the next three chapters are going to be describing these series of tests that Joseph is about to put them through to determine if these are the same kind of men who sold him into slavery two decades ago or if they have changed. Um, now, when you hear they come and they bow down to Joseph, you, if it didn't click in when Moses starts talking about the signet ring and all that stuff, your brain at this point ought to be flashing back to chapter 37, where Joseph said in, in his dream, said to his brothers, I had this dream that we had these different um, uh, gatherings of wheat, whatever, bushes of wheat, and, and all of yours bowed down to mine. And they all said, you're crazy. That's, you, you think you're going to rule over us. And here we have them bowing down to him in this very chapter. So the tests that Joseph begins to put them through, they start by him accusing them of being spies. He says, you're not here for food. You're, you're here from, from, from some foreign land to try and find the weaknesses in our country. And they say, no, 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 that's not us. We're, we're not soldiers. We're, we're brothers. We belong together. We come from this land of Canaan, this Hebrew man by the name of Jacob. And, and there were 12 of us. One of us is gone. They don't explain why he's gone. One of us is gone. And then the other one is at home with our dad, the youngest of them. Um, and so uh, Joseph says, I don't buy it. And he has them put in jail for three days. After three days, he pulls them out and says to them, if you want to convince me that you're not spies, then you'll go and you'll bring back this brother of yours that you say existed. Um, and, and that's how I'll know. Um, then he goes and he actually takes Simeon and, and he puts him in chains before them and says, this guy is staying here. And if you don't come back with your brother, he dies. And if you come back without your brother, you all die. And so he's staying here. Now, I don't know why he chooses Simeon. If he just knows like Simeon is like the least liked of the group, if he knows that this is the one that they're most likely to go, we can do without Simeon. I don't know exactly, but he pulls him aside and says, this is what's going to happen. And then we have these, this really interesting little conversation that takes place between the brothers, right there with Joseph standing there. But here's the thing, because they think he's Egyptian, they're speaking to him through an interpreter. So they don't know that when they turn to each other and speak to, to one another in Hebrew, that he can understand it, that he can hear them. And so they turn to each other in the middle of the court in chapter 42, starting in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Talking about selling Joseph off. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So he takes Simeon and he ties him up or, and leads him off and, and tells him, you've got to bring Benjamin. Now, what that does, actually, is it does three different things. Um, first of all, it allows him to see if they're still the kind of men who have no problem throwing a brother under the bus. They're like, well, will they just say, hey, we're fine. We, we'll leave him, cut, cut our losses, and get back and save our own hides. The second is that it allows him actually to see his brother Benjamin. Um, that he has not seen in two decades, which I'm sure he wants to. But the third thing is, is, is it's going to give him the chance to watch them interact with Benjamin. So he knows exactly how they treated dad's favorite 20 years ago. And he wants to see how they're going to treat dad's favorite like right in front of him. And so he tells them, you've got to bring him back. Joseph sends them back, but secretly he has them fills up their bags with grain, but then he also puts all their money back into their bags. And when they get back and they open it up, they go, oh, crap, we're hosed now. Um, because now it looks like not only were we spying, it looks like we, we stole, like we took the grain and we didn't even pay for it. And so they're kind of freaking out about that. Um, they go back to their dad who goes, where's Simeon? And they go, it's a really long story. And they explain that this man doesn't believe us and the only way we can go back there again is if we bring Benjamin. Jacob says, there's not a chance. I'm not, I'm not letting this, this kid out of my sight. 
He's not leaving this house. It's not happening. And they beg him. Reuben even offers. He says, listen, let me bring him. And if I don't bring him back alive, then you can take the lives of my two sons in his place. You can kill them. Which sounds like a really terrible deal, actually. Like, if your son dies, don't worry. You can kill your grandsons. It'll be okay. Um, but for some reason, I, I think probably the, the bigger idea of Reuben is probably not, I mean, Assuming he's not going to do it, I think he's just saying, I will bet my son's life on it that I will make sure he gets back safe. But Jacob's not going to take that, uh, take that bark in there. Eventually, though, food begins to run out. And Jacob knows they got to go back, but he, he's refusing. He said, they say, we can't. We cannot go back without Benjamin. He says, I'm not sending him. And this leads to a key moment in the narrative regarding Judah. It happens in chapter 43, verses 8 through 10. Um, says, And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned by now. We had gone and returned twice, he says. So we see in this moment that something seems to be different in Judah. That, that little interaction, that episode with Tamar seems to have um, switched something in him to, to, to begin to strip away from some of the selfishness and the, and the violence and, and the unrighteousness in him. And he's willing to take responsibility and says, I will take the boy and you can put it all on me if I don't. Jacob finally listens to him and, and they go back. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he goes and he tells his steward, his head servant, he says, I want you to invite those guys to my house for a meal today. Um, and so the steward goes and says, you have been invited to the governor's house. And they are not excited about that. Um, because you can imagine, thousands of people are showing up to get grain from this guy. And he wants us to come to his house. The guy who put us in jail last time. The guy who said we're spies last time. And they think it's a trap. This can't be good. This can't be something that's going to work out. But when they get there, Joseph comes out and greets them. And he sees Benjamin. And the text says he loses it. He says, basically, bless you, my son. And then he has to run out of the room and he begins to weep again. But then they have the meal and, and when they sit down at their table, they notice that they've been placed in birth order, um, which again, weirds them out like crazy. Okay, what is going on? Um, how, like, how would anybody know, you know, what, what order in? The other thing they see is that they're given portions from Joseph's table. He, he feeds them well, but that Benjamin gets five times the portions of everybody else in front of them. Um, so it's, it's perhaps partly, uh, hey, he really, likes, uh, he really likes Joseph or whatever, but I think, or he really likes Benjamin, but I think actually more than that is, let's see how these guys do when Benjamin gets treated with favoritism. Let's see, let's, let me watch how these guys interact when clearly Benjamin is the favored one in the room. When clearly I like him more, I want to watch what happens between them. And then he'll add one more layer to this thing with Benjamin. When they're done eating, the very next day he sends them away. He has their bags filled with grain. He releases Simeon. He sends them all out. But before he does that, he tells his steward, his head servant, to go slip Joseph's special silver cup into Benjamin's sack. And they go out that next morning, and right as they get on the outskirts of town to the edge, Joseph sends out the steward and a number of men to go and stop them and arrest them. And they say, um, I cannot believe, they find the brothers and say, we cannot believe you would return such kindness with wickedness, that one of you stole his cup. All the brothers go, no, there's no way any of us touched any of his stuff. You could, but whoever has it, you can kill him on the spot. And then they go through. And they open up the bags and they find Benjamin's to have the silver cup. And the story says that they, in that moment, they just tear their clothes. They begin just weeping and overcome with grief because this is the moment that they've dreaded. This is the thing that Reuben promised would never happen. This is the thing that Judah promised would never happen. This is the thing they cannot go back and tell their dad about. And so the servant says, no, the rest of you guys are free to go, but I'm, I'm taking this one back. And they go, no, we're all going with him. And they all go back to the palace. And again, Joseph comes out 
and says, you guys are all free. The guilty party stays. And in this moment, he's actually set up almost an exact reenactment of what happened 20 years ago. Once again, these brothers are far away from dad. They're not at home. And they're in a foreign place with the youngest, with the favorite. And they've got the opportunity to sell the youngest off into slavery in Egypt. Once again. And Joseph wants to go, let's see what happens here. Like, I, it's, it's not even a hard thing. It would be easiest for them to be able to leave now because that keeps them out of trouble if they just leave. And, and Joseph wants to know what's going to happen when I ask them to do that. And then we come to another key moment in Judah's story. Remember, and this is where I, this is where I have to go back on my statement when I said that Joseph and his story gets more airtime than anybody else. That's not entirely true. It's not just Joseph's story. It's the story of Jacob's sons. And we see that because there's a tension put on specifically Judah in this. And in chapter 44, verses 30 through 40, or 34 says this. So I got to get to it. Um, now, therefore, as, uh, this is what Judah says. So basically, he goes to him and he says, I cannot, I cannot leave Benjamin here. My, my father could not handle it. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a... Uh, pledge of safety. Judah's talking about himself now. For I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my brother." Uh, this is Judah's high point. This is the climax of his story. This is him at his best after we've seen him at his worst several chapters earlier. And Joseph sees it and notices it too. 45 verse 1 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence, which is probably an understatement. Um, this is the guy that they, literally they were ready to kill and instead said, eh, let's make a buck off of him and sold him off into slavery. And now he stands before him second to the most powerful man in the known world at that time, um, able to do whatever he wants. Their life is in his hands, and they can't. He asks us, how's dad doing? And they can't even get words to come out of their mouth. <laughs> and it says, so Joseph said to his brothers, he calms them, and these words right here are the summary of the last 13 chapters of, the, of, of Genesis. This sums up what this story is about. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That is a huge moment there. And, and that language, that remnant language, he sent me to preserve a remnant. That remnant language is something that the prophets in the Old Testament will later grab onto. When they talk about things looking bleak for the people of God, and when everyone is walking away or everyone is being punished or everyone is being destroyed, the prophets will say that God is going to redeem his people by preserving a remnant. There will still be some that make it through. That idea is going to be big in the Old Testament, and then it's going to be big in the New Testament when the New Testament writers grab on to that same idea. Um, we've seen that Genesis shows a series of obstacles um, that, that, that get put up. 
Oh, Siri. Um, so a series of obstacles that seem to stand in the way of the covenant promises that God has made. And we see God over and over again um, overcoming those obstacles. There are three major ones that take place here in this story that are all that God uses Joseph to, to kind of overcome and to move through. Uh, the first is we see that there was a threat for a death of the covenant people. This is the most obvious, that unless God sends Joseph to Egypt, unless God gets him to Potiphar's house and then gets him in prison and then gets him before the cupbearer and then gets him before Pharaoh and then gets him to the place on the throne, unless that happens, then God's people die of starvation in the land of Canaan because there is no food in Egypt for them to go and eat. And the covenant comes to an end. That's the first one, but because Joseph has been placed there, he is able to save the people by providing food in the middle of famine. Second is the fizzling out of God's people through intermarriage and foreign influence that they could have, as Judah began to do with the Canaanites and others, just intermarried and dispersed and kind of been in that. What happens, though, is when Joseph brings them to Egypt, which we'll talk about next week, he settles them in the land of Goshen, and he puts it this nice pasture land, and they have that to themselves. That, they, that Israel is allowed to kind of grow up as their own people group. We called it at the beginning the incubation of the people of God, of the covenant people. That they are able to grow up as a nation there because Joseph moves them to that spot. Third, and this may have been the most deadly of all of them, is that family division and violence has plagued the covenant family of God um, since the time Jacob deceived his brother Esau. For the blessing. And you could actually go back if you wanted to with Sarah and, and Hagar even. But, but since that time, there has been conflict between Rachel and Leah. There's been conflict between the brothers. There have been horrible things done to them. And Joseph, by his willingness to forgive and refuse to exact vengeance on his brothers, brings a level of reconciliation and togetherness to the people of God, to the family of God that has not existed basically from the beginning. And so God uses him to do those things. Um, I told you that verses 4 through 8 of 45 were like, they were the summary, the key of this thing. Let me give it to you in a smaller form. Chapter 50, verse 20. After Jacob dies and the brothers will go to him, and they're like, man, now that dad's gone, Joseph's really going to take it to us. And they go and they confess, but Joseph actually says this in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what you meant for bad, God meant for good. He was behind all of this. He was sovereign. He worked it all together for His purposes, which is beautiful and amazing and also a little complicated. Because how do we say that God is behind even like some of those really hard things that happen? And what degree of control does he have over people's actions, those kinds of things? And what does that have to do with us in our lives today? In just a couple minutes, Scott will get up and talk a bit about that. But we'll take a break before then. I mean, for a while, because it, it really is a great opportunity for us to talk about this subject, but... Before we get into that, anybody, any bad chess players here? Any bad chess players? Okay, I'm bad at chess. My dad, my dad, when I was growing up, my my dad would play chess. He would play chess with his little game. Is like before we had video games. It was like you know, before color was invented. Um, this little computer game named Boris. Okay, and Boris was really good at at, at chess. And and so there was like ten levels. There was level one all the way up to level 10 of difficulty. And so he, my dad taught me how to play. We'd play once in a while. And so I got to the point where I could play Boris at level one. And so I would play Boris, and he would beat me. Um, and, then, and then I think maybe I beat him once or twice, and it was just like a you know, highlight, you know. And then I thought, man, I wonder what it's like to play Boris at 10, you know, because my dad was up to like level four, level five. He was kind of getting up there. I wonder what 10's like. So I played Boris at 10, and it was like three, four moves, check. Two moves, checkmate. Like, what happened, you know? And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll try another strategy. Two moves, check. Two more moves, checkmate. What's, you know, in this over and over, and it was like, it was almost like no matter what I did, no matter what strategy I, I, I went for, 
Um, it was like it worked towards his plan, which was to win. No matter what, no matter what moves I made, it seemed to work. It just worked his plan out. Like his plan was going to happen, and his plan was to win. No matter what I did or didn't do, no matter what mistakes I made or whatever, it seems like this thing was just determined to happen. So I think about those moments, and I think about this story, and I wonder when I wonder when Joseph had this moment when he's like. Oh my gosh. I maybe I don't know if he thought this way. If he was American, he would definitely think this way. I'm not the point of the story. Huh. I remember I, I don't know if you guys remember so when I was growing up and I watched movies, I thought it was real life. And so then I would I would I would go into the bathroom and I'd look for cameras cuz I just assumed like that like this is how this works. If I'm watching somebody on TV that means somebody's being filmed. So if someone else is being filmed, maybe I'm being filmed. And I would watch, I would look, for, I would just like walk around like I was in a movie because I thought I was, obviously, I was the star of this show. Um, and so I wonder when Joseph had this realization that he wasn't really the point. Like he wasn't really the star of this show. Um, in fact, he was maybe more like a pawn on a chessboard. Like maybe he was more like, maybe, okay, maybe he was a knight or, or a horsey. Um, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm bad at chess because um, I don't even know what it's called no um, so like when do you think he had that moment like was it when, it was when his brothers walked in and maybe he thought oh revenge or you know was it when he you know, who knows the second time they came back who knows when, when was this moment where he realized like oh there's a bigger plan here there's a bigger story here I'm not, I'm not the center of this thing and so I want to talk about this, this idea of, of sovereignty. It's a big idea in Scripture, but I want to talk about, as I can try to spell it while I'm talking, which isn't very easy. E-R-I-G-N. Thank you. This E-I-G-N-T-Y. You forgot the T-Y, Jared. Um, so it's okay. It's okay. Uh, um, so I, I want to talk about how is God sovereign? So how does this work? How is God sovereign? And, and specifically, I want to look at three attributes that the Bible describes God as that, that um, really just prove His sovereignty. Uh, and then I want to talk about the implications of His sovereignty for the rest of our time. So how is God sovereign? And, and then what are the implications of that sovereignty? Um, the, first, the first attribute that I want to talk about is that God is omniscient, that He is all-knowing. The Bible describes God as, as um, knowing all things. Okay, so Isaiah 40, 13 and 14 says, Who has measured, measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer to all of those questions is no one. That's, that's the point that Isaiah is making. No one shows, man, shows God um, you know, counsel. No one teaches God anything. No one um, shows Him the path of understanding. No one, no one can do that. Listen to um, what David says in Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. You know, my, you know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You searched out my path and my laying down. In my, and are acquainted with all my ways. So like David is describing how God knows him, knows his thoughts, knows where he's, where he's at all times. There's nothing that David can do that would be outside of God's knowledge. Listen to how Paul sums it up in Romans 11, 33-36. some of my favorite verses in the Scriptures. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. In other words, like who, who, could, counsel, who could counsel God to do something? Who could give God a gift that then God would owe him something? What would that, what would that gift be? What would that piece of information be? And the answer is nothing. No one. 
God has never learned. Think about that. God can't learn anything because for him to learn something would mean that he didn't know something. So he, he, he doesn't learn things. God can't be corrected about anything he knows. It, it would mean that he was wrong about something and God, since he knows all things, can't be wrong about something. Um, his knowledge has no limits. So that's what the Bible says. And I just picked three of the 20 or so that, that, were, that are available. Um, the next one I want to talk about is God's um, omnipotence. He is all-powerful. In fact, um, this one is, there's an actual word in the Bible that occurs 56 times. And it's the word almighty. And it's the same word as omniscient or, or omnipotent. Um, omnipotent is, is a, comes from a Latin word. And the, the, the English transla- translation of the Latin word is ultimately almighty. And so the word comes up all the time throughout Scripture. Here's, here's it in Job 37. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is, he, is in great, he is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord, it is You who have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nothing hinders God from doing what He wants. Um, he He can do, because He has all power, He can do whatever He wants, however He wants. Um, he is not, He is never tired. He is never lacking. And His power has no limit. So, he's all-knowing, and, he, and he's all-powerful. And the, the next one, he is infinite. He's everlasting. Isaiah forty twenty eight. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That verse came alive to me on September um, 11th, 2001. I was, my wife and I were pregnant with our first child, Kylie. Um, we were living in Southern California. I was a pastor at a church. We were waking up. It was 7 a.m. in California time. Um, as you know, the planes struck the first tower, I believe, at 9 a.m. Eastern time. So by 10 a.m., which is when I was waking up in California, the second plane hit, and, our, and Ryan's mom, my wife, her name is Ryan, her mom called, told us to turn on the TV. We watched that second plane fly into the tower and then watched the news for about an hour and then drove to work, and all we did all day long with, with the staff was just watch the news and pray and have people come in and want to talk to us about it. It was, it was a crazy day. And I remember being uh, reading through the Bible that year, and I was, I don't know where I was, obviously I was in Proverbs, because that verse was a part of my scripture that day. And I, and I just, I had to stop and go, really? Like, many are the plans, but your purposes? Hmm. Re- uh, Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So God is all-knowing, He's all-powerful, and He's infinite, and so He must be sovereign. So what does that mean? What, so what are the implications of His sovereignty then? I think it's three things, um, and maybe I'll probably a lot more, but three things I want to hit on. Um, the first one is that God is fully and completely capable of accomplishing His purposes. What purpose, what plan could God have that He couldn't accomplish? What, could God, what would God set out to do that He would fail? The answer is nothing. Um, because He is fully and completely capable of accomplishing His purposes. Now, what does that mean for us? I think it means a couple things. One, that you and I cannot trust God with everything. 
you and I cannot trust that God is going to do everything we want Him to do. That we, that we, can't, we can't trust God to do what we want. I remember a student of ours, um, she was a leader in our ministry, and we were meeting, and she was talking about some different things, and, and uh, actually it was Jim that asked her this question, do you think you can trust God with this? And she's like, no, I can't trust God. He's going to give me what I want. And he's like, exactly, because he may not give you what you want. So I, he, he's working out his plan and his purposes will prevail, and they may not be your plan and, and your purpose, your purposes, your, your desires. Um, it also means that his purpose will prevail um, over any plan that you have. I know a lot of you come into college, and um, when you graduate high school, and there is a, there's a senior here in high school here tonight, and everyone's going to ask this person, so what's your plan? What are you going to do? And and she may have a plan. You guys all probably had a plan. You're going to go to this college. You're going to get this degree, and then you're going to go on to this, and you're, and then you're going to, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to. This is your five-year plan. This is your ten-year plan, and then you're going to retire at this age, and you're going to do this, and then you're going to do this. And mm-hmm, yeah, at 18 years old, I'm sure you got that figured out. At 22 year old, 22 years old, I'm sure you have that figured out. Um, you, there's a lot of plans that we have, and it's good to have a plan, because if you don't have a plan. Then you just you, maybe you feel aimless. You're just walking around, right? So you got you got to. I remember my my youth pastor telling me, "You're like you're like a ship with with the rudder, um, and if and if you don't if you aren't moving, then the rudder does no good. So you got to be moving for God to move you, kind of a thing, right? So I I think that's a good thing to have a plan to be moving forward, and and allow God the freedom to guide you and direct you and and change your plans, but. Um, but his plan is going to happen. And, and, and you, can, you can try your plan. You can keep pushing for your plan. Um, but you might find yourself pushing against his. So how does, how, does, um, how does our free will fit into his sovereignty? Okay. So I'm not going to open up a 1,500-year debate uh, or solve it by any means. I don't, even want to, I don't even want to go there. But it's true, though. For those of you who don't know, for about 1,500 years, this, 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 this question of man's free will and God's sovereign will, how, does, how do those things happen? How do those things meet? It, does man even have free will? Some, some would even go as far as to say that we don't. We don't have a free will. We don't have a choice that God has predetermined it all and that uh, this, is what, you know, this is what you get. I actually don't, I actually don't buy that or believe that. Um, I believe that that uh, even more amazing is that God gives us a choice, gives us choices to make, and yet there is a greater plan that is always working out in Him winning, ultimately. And, and so I think, I believe that He's given us freedom to choose, to obey or not to obey, but the consequences of our choice fit into God's plan. That, that somehow... Um, think about this. You, you could choose to, to follow Him, to obey Him, or you could choose not to. Okay? Um, and you could, you know, you could even choose not to believe in Him. Okay? I don't, like, I don't like the fact that God has a plan and that His plan is bigger than my plan. Okay, great. You, you don't have to believe that. If it's true, it won't change anything. Right? So if if the God of the Bible is true. If He's revealed Himself and this is really who He is, then you cannot you can choose not to believe Him or believe Him. It's not going to change Him. So, if that's true, then you, you if you choose not to follow Him, then what the Bible seems to describe is your life will head in a direction away from Him, and ultimately, it'll be to the praise of God. It'll be to the glory of God. How is that possible? Well, because it'll prove that you headed away from Him and the direction you headed is not for Him and and you will get what you want ultimately. And God will be praised. Or you could be on the good side of this and listen to Him, follow Him, obey Him, trust Him, 
because he's good, because he's, not only is he infinite, but his love is infinite. His mercy is infinite. His grace and forgiveness are infinite. And so if all those things are true, you trust him and follow him and it'll be to the, to his praise and to his glory. But ultimately his plan of being glorified is going, is going to happen. It's going to take place because he is in control. Have you ever, have you ever sat and thought about all the thing, all the variables that exist for you to be where you are and who you are, like, like where you were born, you didn't choose that. When you were born, you didn't choose. You could have been born at any time period in history, and you were, you, you were born this time. You could have been born at any place, to any place, to any family, all over the world, and you're cho- you chosen to born in this family, in this place. Like think about it all the way down to your best friend in elementary. Okay? You might have picked your best friend in elementary. Okay? At some level, maybe you had a choice in that. But here's what's crazy. Your best friend has parents and who also have parents. And you know how this works. They, it just keeps going. And all of those, all of those people, okay, and it's crazy. It's like a little Russian doll thing. No. Um, all of those people, there's choices that were made that ended up them being together, choosing the job, choosing the location, choosing the home, choosing the whatever, all the way down to your best friend in elementary, their parents being together, choosing the, the house they live in and the neighborhood they chose and the school district or the church or the whatever to be sitting next to you in fourth grade and you say, hey, you want to be best friends, however that happens. That's how it happened for you. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I bet it is. You, your first day of school was meeting 30 new best friends. Yeah, there you go. See, so, like, but you had a choice in the matter, but there are an in, a crazy number of infinite, uh, not infinite, truly not infinite, um, a crazy number of variables that existed for your friend to be in that room for you guys to be friends, right? And that, it, it just keeps going on and on. There, there are, I mean, the, the people you live with, you could live, it, you could live with anybody, but you live with who you live with. You could be um, in any program, any degree. You could be, you could be interested in, in, in all kinds of things or gifted in all kinds of different ways, but you have the gifts and you have the abilities and you have the interests you have. Why? Is it strictly DNA? Are you, are you interested in anything that your parents are not interested in? Like there, like there are tons of variables that exist. And, and so even, even here tonight, you're sitting in, in this room tonight, um, and so Drew and I were meeting with the guy who owns this house. He rents it out to some students. And we were meeting with him to see if he had students for the fall, and we were going to tell him about some projects we're going to be doing this summer, this and that. And he, was, he, he began to tell us about how he used to live in this, in this house in the 70s for about four or five years. He raised his kids there. He was telling us about a family that lived here. And he was telling us about, yeah, the parents were, were, were great. Their, their parents were nice. The kids were hoodlums, though. They were crazy. They were a mess. They were always in trouble. The cops were always getting called. They tried to break into our house once. All this stuff he was telling me, telling us about it. We, he just went on and on about this story. It was starting to make us a little awkward and uncomfortable. Um, but I, I, I was thinking, like, those guys could have burned this house down, and, and we wouldn't be sitting here. N- none of us had any, any, anything to do with that. The fact that it's still standing um, is... I, you know, there's a bigger plan here. Um, the other thing that, lots of things actually. There, there could have been an ice storm that could have happened that prevented us from being here tonight. There could have been, um, most likely there's a drunk driver driving around Stillwater tonight. And, and you could have interacted with him, but you turned, or he turned, most likely he turned before, um, before they got to you. That allowed you to be here tonight. Um, Cancer didn't form in your body, which allowed you to be here tonight. Um, An accident didn't happen um, as you were texting and driving today, or yesterday, or the day before, um, that allowed you to be here tonight. I I think we need to start a support group. And and I'm truly, I need to be, I need to be the president of this club, my name is Scott Irwin, it's been two days. Um, but still, I'm serious. I, I'm, 
I'm really serious. I think we need to start a support group. Um, <laughs> put that on the list. But there's a lot of variables that allowed you to be here tonight that you had no control of. Um, and, and I just, there's a reason, right? There, there's a purpose. Do you see that purpose? Are you willing to acknowledge that purpose that ultimately, um, ultimate control is an illusion for us? It is. You and I can try to be in control. We, we, we do it all the time. We try to take control, but we're not in control. And there is one who is in control, the one who tells us he's in control. And the harder, we, the harder we try to take control, the more we are opposing him. And so it leads me to the third thing, which is that his sovereignty means that he is Lord. Um, in fact, uh, this, is, this is silly, and you guys probably already know this, but I was looking at this word and saw this word in here, rain, I thought that was kind of interesting. I never really noticed that before. You guys were like, duh. It's been there the whole time. Um, but but the, the idea that this idea of God reigning, He wants to reign. He wants to rule. He wants to be in control. He is in control. He just wants, he wants us to acknowledge it and, su- and submit to it. Um, because the story of the Gospel, the story of Jesus... It starts in the garden and moves to Abraham and the patriarchs and God's promises to him and to his people. And then it goes to the people of Israel. Okay? And here in a couple of weeks, we're going to kind of walk through the rest of the story of Israel to help you see where this story goes after Genesis. But uh, it goes through the people of Israel. Over and over and over, we see that God's people cannot live a holy life. They cannot live a righteous life that God deserves um, and so God needs them to be remade. They're made in His image and they need to be remade into the One who comes, who lives a perfect life, who dies in our place for our sins, who conquers sin and death, the two things that hold us back from eternity with God. He, uh, he conquers those things and then, and then sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. And so the Gospel the, that, that the Bible in the New Testament presents, the Gospel that is... Um, announced and pronounced and confessed in the book of Acts is not Jesus came to get you out of hell. It is not Jesus is here to make your life better. It's not Jesus is here to make you a better person. It's, and it's not, um, it's not even God loves you so much. That's why you should accept Him because He, he loves you. So you should trust Jesus. That's, that's never, that gospel is never preached in Acts. Did you know that? You know what gospel is preached over and over and over? Jesus is Lord and King. And, and He rules. And He wants you to submit your life to Him. That's, that's the message of the gospel. That Jesus, the sovereign God, or, orchestrated all these events to bring Jesus to this earth so He could be Lord and King. And what that means is, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His kingdom will demolish all kingdoms, even the kingdoms that you and I are establishing on a daily basis as we try to do our own thing and and follow our own plan. So I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Is He truly Lord? Have you worked that out? Are, are Are you giving your life to Him? As he, as he reveals these things to you, are you trusting Him with these things? Because he's, he's ruling and reigning. Is He Lord? There's, it's either yes or no. And even yes, is, yes is a, can be a complicated yes, I get it. Yes, He is, but there's still some things that I keep trying to hold on to. I get that. Okay, that's called sanctification. That's called a process that we're in. I get it. But are you embracing the reality that, is, that, is, that He is in control? that He wants you to surrender um, your life to Him. And so, this idea that Jesus is Lord, I think, is something that needs to be worked out. I think something sometimes we can say, or we can believe in our heads, but we really don't truly live out or work out into our life. And so things like, you know, I'm having relationship issues, I'm having issues with someone in my life. Okay, well, Jesus is Lord, so let's, go, let's start there and let's work, let's work down. Let's work the problem out. Okay, 
You having a problem with so-and-so? Well, Jesus is Lord, so now what? You don't know what to do with your life. You don't know where, where to go with it. Okay, well, Jesus is Lord, so now what? How do we work this problem out? How do you think through? With Jesus being Lord, now how do you work this thing out? Um, I'm lonely. I, 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 want, I want someone to be with. Okay, well, Jesus is Lord, so then let's, let's work that out. I don't know how to talk to my friends about Jesus. Okay, I get that. Jesus is Lord, so what are you afraid of? What, 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 what's hindering that? See, when Jesus is Lord, I believe you'll live the life. I believe I'll live the life that I was created to live, that you were created to live, a, a full life in Him. And God isn't trying to hold us back from something. I remember when, when my kids were little, anytime we would show up at a park, like, or, or like a play area in a, in a, in a mall or something, um, my kids would get out and they would want to just, I mean, they would see the big swing set or see the big um, thing to climb up in the slide or whatever, and they would just want to take off for it, right? Because they're kids, they're excited, they're whatever. And we've got three, and I just remember, you know, when you have three, it's like zone defense. So it can't, it's not man-to-man anymore. you got to figure out, okay, well, how do I... So, you know, when they're toddlers, you're really just life prevention. You're just trying to keep them alive. Anytime you're out in public, it's, you know, don't fall off something. Don't jump off that. Don't, whatever. And so I remember, I remember um, several times, in one particular, my son just wanted to take off to this big tire swing or whatever it was. What he didn't see was there was high schoolers running back and forth playing football in the same area, okay? So he's not paying attention to them. They're not paying attention to him. There, there was a dog over here that nobody was watching. I don't even know who it belonged to. And, and then there's a bunch of adults that I didn't know. So, and it was a big area. It was about, about 20, 30 yards away. And so I'm not just going to let him run off. I'm like holding on to him, and I'm helping get the other sisters out, and I'm holding on to his shirt, and he's kicking and screaming. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I remember reflecting back on that. I remember thinking, he probably thinks I'm holding him back from, like, living like some sort of incredible thing. Like, Dad, there's a thing right there. Won't you let me go? And I'm going, but you don't see what I see. Like, you don't see all these other things that are happening that could happen. Like, my job isn't to hinder you from, from life. My job is to, to let you live, right? And I, I think that's, that's true of, of God. Like, He wants you to live, and, and that life requires submitting to Him, surrendering to Him, making Him Lord and King. So, I want to stop. I want to pray. I want to allow a few minutes for you guys to just pray about what um, what that might mean for you. What would it mean to make Jesus Lord? What are the things in your life that need to be surrendered to Him, that, that need to be given to Him? And um, so take a couple minutes, and then I'll close in prayer.